What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 151 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, go over the news, and then ask the question, should vegans embrace the vegan-ish label? Paul, I can't can't lie to you. I have a really good feeling about today's episode. I think it's going to be straight fire. <laughs> it's going to be some good ish, Andy. Hey-o. Some good vegan ish. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Sorry about that joke, Andy, but <laughs> so let's move into it. We got an announcement to make, an exciting announcement. Yeah, that's right. So October 13th, Paul, that's going to be the date of our next live podcast. Where is it taking place? You might ask. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, and that is Chicago <laughs> Vegan Mania in the great city of Chicago, Illinois. This is an event that I have really loved over the many years that I've done it as a vendor. Last year, I was a speaker, and it's just one that I've seen sort of grow and flourish. I love what the organizers are doing with it, with the the, the types of messaging and the types of speakers that they include. So I'm so excited to be bringing the podcast there. And what's going to make this one extra, extra, extra special is that it's actually going to be a live collaboration podcast with Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. So we will be joining Nicole and Callie and all four of us will be doing an episode together live in front of pre- presumably an audience if anyone shows up. So <laughs> I'm I'm really excited for this. I love the collaborations that we do with them. This will be our first time doing a live like crossover episode where it's actually in front of people and not just via Skype. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but I have a feeling that it's going to be a really fun time and hopefully a really thought-provoking time as well. I think it's going to be great, Andy. I think it's going to be some good vegan-ish. Oh, boy, Paul. I just (laughs) think you need to let that one go. (laughs) I can't. I'm never going to. The people need to hear that joke, Andy. People need that (laughs) vegan-ish. So let's move on into the food, Andy. You you took a stop back to one of your one of your dare I say favorite places. Yeah, you know, Paul, you, you need not dare because I will safely <laughs> confirm that in fact, Modern Love in Brooklyn, New York, is one of my all time favorite places to eat. Certainly, the top of the charts for New York City, at least. And I, Paul, I'm just so eager to get into the main body of this episode. So all I'm going to say is, return there continues to impress. And the one thing I'll highlight is they have added these mozzarella sticks to their menu. And I think it's unfair to call them mozzarella sticks because they're, they're like more like mozzarella slabs. They're like mm-hmm. three mm-hmm. by three fried slabs of deliciousness. The texture is great. The sauce that they, they sort of <laughs> drown them in for the dipping <laughs> is delicious. And it's just crispy fried perfection. Totally brings me back to my days of eating mozzarella sticks as a, a, a young ska kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I honestly just can't recommend Modern Love enough. And that's all I'm going to say about food this week. But, Paul. Yes, Andy. What went in that beautiful mouth of yours this past week? So, I took a trip back to Philadelphia 
and I was I was hunkering for some from junky some junky vegan Chinese food. And if you're familiar with the Philadelphia vegan scene, you might say, oh, well, of course, Paul went to New Harmony. But nay, you would be incorrect. I actually have not been to New Harmony since before I even moved to Philadelphia, which is a while ago at this point. Well, not really a year and a half. I guess that's not very long. But I did not go to New Harmony. I went to this place called Sushing for the first time. And it's it's in the same niche of like kind of not the healthiest junky. It's all vegetarian. I don't believe it's all vegan, but it was great. It, it made me very nostalgic for china pan it made me long for china pan because i'll say this nothing for me has topped the the junky vegan scene as as china pan has but it was still very good if you go there gotta get the scallion pancakes as the appetizer i think that was the best thing that i had there it was tremendous also got some pan fried dumplings as an appetizer those were great as well i got something called mashed tofu on nori with barbecue sauce which is an an unwieldy name for a pretty good dish but uh yeah they should just call it something else something that, that like is slightly more appealing but it was good it was good so if you're into mashed tofu mashed tofu sounds like a dish made custom for you <laughs> it kind of does although i i don't know i usually don't mash up my tofu before i eat it i like it in in nice mozzarella slab style uh, bricks <laughs> <laughs> i just picture you ordering it and they're like oh my oh my is that paul steller he finally came and ordered it no one's ever ordered mashed tofu before <laughs> And then and then the last thing I got was this sesame seitan dish, which was great, although it's possibly not seitan. It was possibly a soy protein that they have mislabeled as seitan. That's what it tasted like, at least. It didn't really taste like seitan, but who am, who am I to tell them what their, their products are made out of, Andy? You're Professor Paul Steller. That's who you are. <laughs> professor of seitan. Professor <laughs> of protein. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I had. It was quite good, Andy. Cool. I'm definitely gonna have to check that place out sometime because that is, that's an itch that I like to scratch quite often. So <laughs> I'll definitely give it a shot. Okay. Let's move on to this follow-up. Just a, a little bit of follow-up today. And that is that a couple of episodes, Paul, you brought up this bill in California called SB1138, a number which I have memorized by heart, <laughs> which is a bill that would require all licensed California healthcare facilities and state prisons to have plant-based meals and so we were talking about it. It had passed, I believe, the state Senate, but it had not officially been signed into law. And we were musing on whether or not Governor Jerry Brown would do that. And I am pleased to report that, in fact, Governor Jerry Brown did sign that into law. So that is Ooh. now official in the state of California, which I think is a pretty dang cool thing. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I remember it seemed like it was going to go through. But, you know, with these things, who who knows if like the the... I don't know, big, big agriculture was going to pull out some, pull out all their, all the stops at the end and block this somehow, but they, they did not. So na 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 to you, yeah. big ag. <laughs> neener, 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 I think is uh, what, the, what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I was looking for, Andy. But yes, this is very cool. Yes, it is. And so, I don't know, when we were talking about that, I feel like we noticed this trend where things aren't necessarily 100% official and people start celebrating it regardless as if it is 100% official. And mm -hmm. that brings us to our first news story today, Paul. 
California doing it up. Take two. Yeah. So this is our, our new running theme here, apparently. So, Paul, a lot of people have been celebrating this big move in Los Angeles, saying that Los Angeles has officially banned fur sales. And that has been the headline throughout. And then as I was digging a little bit further, this is also something that is sort of waiting for a few final pieces to fall into place before it's actually signed into law. So I'm going to, I found a not so hyperbolic and celebratory article from fashionista.com where we're going to use for some of our information here. This came out on September 18th. The city of Los Angeles may soon ban fur sales entirely. So you'll notice it's a may soon ban. So reading from this article, on Tuesday, Los Angeles inched closer toward becoming the largest American city to join the movement, with the city council voting unanimously to ban fur sales within city limits. In order for the anti-fur ordinance to pass, it still needs to be drafted by the city attorney's office and signed by Mayor Eric Garcetti. Garcetti? Uh, sorry, Eric. Sorry, According Eric. to CBS LA. But the fact that it was so strongly recommended by the council is already being considered a win by animal rights activists. So I still think this is pretty cool. I'm I'm guessing that this is inevitably going to happen. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, according to New York Times, the council expects that the city attorney will return with a requisite language in about a month and that the ban will take effect two years from the day it is officially signed into law. And according to USA Today, the ban would end the sale not only of fur coats and mink stoles, but also fur on handbags, earmuffs, and even Lucky Rabbit's feet, which is really important because, as I'm about to tell you, Paul, it's actually <laughs> those handbags and earmuffs and rabbit's feet and fur trim on the coats. Those are actually the thing that are driving the fur industry much more so than the big, iconic fur coats. Hmm. Interesting. You know, Andy, I had, I had a thought because while I agree with you that when these things sort of, when these things tend to happen, it seems like vegans celebrate them slightly prematurely, but is it possible that all these articles coming out that are like celebrating the end of this thing could have an influence on whoever it is that needs to then sign this into law? Like if they see like, oh, this is what people want i mean i you know if they dig deeper and they're like oh this is just like this is just vegans and and that's obviously why they're against it but like you know you're reading from not vegan websites and and if jerry brown or whoever or eric garcetti or whoever has to sign these things if they see the outpour of support for this that i think that that might influence their their decisions yeah that's definitely an interesting point and i also think that you know, the, the victories are few and far between in this movement. And I guess we got to celebrate where we can. Yeah. Like, I, I guess be, be, besides disappointment, is there a downside to like celebrating too early in, in a situation like this? I mean, I guess my worry is that we might be spreading false information and that something has passed when it has not actually passed. Yeah, I guess that's not good. <laughs> yeah, I think that. I, I don't know. I guess I think that's sort of a running theme with a lot of how we feel that we should be advocating in, in that we should be honest about what's, you know, what we can promise from eating a plant based diet. We can mm -hmm. be honest about the effects that, that going vegan actually has on animals and the, and the shortcomings and all of those things. And so I feel like if we sort of overblow certain victories that 
we run the risk of blowing our credibility if something like this doesn't end up passing. That's true. That is true. Okay. I see that as a potential downside. So, but anyway, I mean, you know, ultimately it does seem like this is, is likely to pass, especially, you know, in the, the presumably very liberal city of Los Angeles. So overall, I choose to view this as, as great positive news. It's just another, another, another chip away at the old brick in the, this giant wall of speciesism and animal oppression. But mm-hmm. uh, I think that ultimately we can probably view it as positive. But, Paul. But. So, you know, we, we, we giveth and we taketh away because <laughs> during my research for this this article, I found something on September 11th from Vox.com. Fur is dead. Long live fur. Ooh. So I think it's important that while we do celebrate the small victories and the big victories, nonetheless, that it is also important for us to keep our eye on the prize and and not feel like the job is done. And I think, Paul, you and I, whenever we've had discussions about fur, we generally have this impression that fur is going out of style, that fur is one of these things that even people who are the the most staunch meat eaters and and non-vegans, even those people often are disgusted by fur and realize that fur is kind of morally reprehensible. And it's just sort of this antiquated thing that is this going out of style. And it turns out we are blatantly wrong about that oh no in 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 many regards at least so so the vox article does talk about how that there are a lot of these cities like uh, la but also berkeley recently and a few others that have banned the sale of fur but also that in fact fur is not necessarily out of style so i'm going to read a little bit from this article fur accents and accessories function as a sort of gateway drug in the industry We start with the young consumer buying a fur key ring. Then maybe a little later, she has more money for a fur bag. Julia Maria Iverson of Copenhagen Fur in Denmark told National Geographic in 2016. Eventually, she buys a fur coat. It's all part of the agenda to inspire the upcoming generation of women. The agenda seems to be working. This year alone, the U.S. is expected to manufacture more than $352 billion in fur apparel and accessories, according to market research firm Euromonitor International. That's a slight gain from 2014, when $336.9 billion worth of fur was manufactured domestically. But fashion isn't the only sector responsible for this 4% jump in fur manufacturing. The furniture industry has increasingly used fur in chair coverings, and expenditures on fur goods in that sector grew by 10% from 2011 to 2016. Furrier's ability to weather the ongoing criticisms about the ethics of fur has largely been attributed to the global demand for fur and the perception, even domestically, that wearing fur is a personal choice and not necessarily a moral one. And while animal rights activists have suggested that young people don't wear fur, National Geographic pointed out that celebrities' fondness for it, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Kim Kardashian, and Rita Ora, have all worn fur, has likely made it seem hip to young people. Whatever the case, the Fur Information Council of America, FICA, claims that 55% of fur shoppers are aged 44 or younger. Boo. So, yeah, so let's let's celebrate these victories, but let's also know that that doesn't necessarily mean less animals are being killed for fur because it seems to be not the case. But hopefully this can be sort of the writing on the wall of what is to come. 
I know that like the quote from the the person in the beginning from Copenhagen for I know that this individual is just saying like this is this is like our business practice this is our good business practice but like because we're talking about something so shitty it makes that person seem like such an evil person it's like yes we start them out young like consuming the fur and then like we gradually progress them into buying full fur coats and it just it like sounds so nefarious I feel like yeah, I mean, uh, the word agenda, uh, I feel like, has been twisted to have a very negative connotation when people are like, the vegan agenda or the, the homosexual agenda, things like that. Yeah. But but in this context, it's like, this is our agenda. Like, we're trying to use this, this the quote-unquote gateway drug of, like, a rabbit's foot key, key ring or something like that. And... And yeah, it is those accessories that are that are really driving the sales of fur. And I think that there's a lot of people that like wear fur that they don't realize is actually fur when it's just sort of like the trim on a coat. And I know that, you know, a lot of the anti-Canada goose activists, well, their thing is that they point out to people that they're actually wearing actual animal skin on their hood and that, you know, coyotes are dogs and they're wearing dog fur and that really grosses people out. So, So I think that, like the big mink fur coat is sort of this very conspicuous symbol of affluence and animal cruelty. But these other little things are things that people don't even think about. Like, oh, it's a nice little pom-pom to have on the end of my key ring. I saw someone with like fur covered sandals in the the New York subway the other day. And, uh, you know, things like that, that maybe don't seem as egregious. Maybe they, they don't seem like they're flaunting the entire dead body of an animal as much as a fur coat is yeah yeah should we move on to this next news story andy yeah you sound so dejected paul (laughs) (laughs) it sucks it's it's like a bummer that you know i I, like you said i I feel like we've brought that up so many times that that oh fur is going out of fashion the fur industry is dying blah 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 so it's a bummer to hear otherwise well, at least we can take some solace knowing that Dairy's inevitable downfall is just around the corner. Next week, we're going to get a, a new star that's like, actually... Dairy consumption's <laughs> up 7,000%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul. So the only other news item that we're going to talk about is unfortunately a very tragic news item and just sort of this this huge whopper of a news item. And we're going to talk about Hurricane Florence right now. So... I'd imagine most people are aware about Hurricane Florence, at least if you live in the U.S., but perhaps you're unaware if you live abroad. We now have a lot of international listeners as well. And Hurricane Florence was this uh, giant hurricane that made landfall in North Carolina recently and affected North Carolina uh, pretty tremendously, as well as South Carolina and Virginia as well. And as of the time that we're recording this on September 19th, the human death toll is about 37 people, mostly in North Carolina, but some in South Carolina and Virginia. And it's really just such a tragic loss of life. Like, I can't even imagine being stuck in this situation um, or having a loved one who lost their life in this situation. So our, our hearts go out to, of course, everyone affected. And those affected goes well beyond those who have actually perished in this this horrible incident. And, of course, it has destroyed tons of property. And, unfortunately, the communities that are affected the most are, of course, rural and working-class Black and Indigenous communities. And those are the ones that end up usually getting the least amount of assistance and, and help in these instances as well. So... 
don't want to lose sight of that as well. But the thing that I think that we want to talk specifically about is sort of the environmental damage and the the animal death toll that has come from Hurricane Florence. So just to sort of paint a picture of how horrible this situation is, um, a lot of people might not be aware that North Carolina is one of the biggest hog farming states. And with that comes a lot of these giant lagoons of of hog like animal waste which are just filled with all of the nastiest of everything and and everything everything bad in this world flourishes in them paul mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. uh we i know we've definitely talked about it it's been covered in some of the movies we've reviewed and we've also talked about some of the lawsuits because a lot of the people that are in the the communities that surround these hog farms are experiencing horrible health issues a lot of respiratory diseases especially because they just they have the lagoons, but they also just sort of spray this waste on the fields to get rid of it. And that puts it up into the air and that gets into everybody's business. So, and again, those are, you know, the people most affected are, of course, you know, lower income uh, communities of color, especially black communities. So uh, it's all pretty bad. So let me frame how horrible this is with an article from Vice from September 18th, which is titled, Hurricane Florence is turning North Carolina into a toxic stew of pig poop, sewage, and coal ash. Yeah. The 40 inches of rain, Hurricane Florence, like, Paul, 40 inches. Damn. That's more than three feet, which I guess means nothing to our international listeners, but (laughs) that's so much water. That is so much water. Like, that's not even the wind damage. That's just over three feet of water, like... It's it's incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. The 40 inches of rain Hurricane Florence has dumped on North Carolina is leaving a trail of industrial waste as runoff from coal ash pits, inundated sewage systems, and feces from dozens of hog farms pour into rivers, lakes, and neighborhoods. And so... So it's the the overflowing hog manure lagoons, as I mentioned. Um, the storm surge has also caused a lot of uh, human waste treatment plants to fail and overflow. And the coal ash mentioned coal ash is a byproduct of burning coal. So I guess it's kind of what's left over. And of course that's not going to be anything good for the environment. So to read further, you basically have a toxic soup for people who live in close proximity to those lagoons, said Sakobi Wilson, a professor of public health at the University of Maryland. All of these contaminants that are in the hog lagoons, like Salmonella, Giardia, and E. coli, can get into the waterways and infect people trying to get out. For many residents, the worst of the environmental impacts might not come until after. People aren't just impacted while they are escaping through a potential mix of animal and human waste, Wilson said. After the event, when they are going back to their houses, there will be a sludge of all different kinds of chemical and microbial contaminants. So this is something that people will be dealing with long after the the floodwaters recede. And it's just, I don't know, Paul, it's to think that we have, as, as a society... <laughs> created this system and allowed this type of storage of the waste produced by the system to be a setup that is so easily just distributed. You know, it's just these like wide open lagoons with no covering whatsoever. I don't know. It's just, it's disgusting. 
yeah, it's like a, it's like a, an, an apocalypse, apocalyptic movie where it's like the setup is like, oh, and here's this giant dam we built to like keep all where we throw all our waste. It's like, and that will never break. And it like, that's what sets up this cataclysmic event that happens. Like that's, that's what it is almost. I mean, that's not what it is, but it's like, like you said, we're, we're setting ourselves up for something like this, some anomaly to happen that, that throws everything out of whack. And I, and I think it's, it's really sad too that when these things happen you know it's like there is it's like what we're what's going on in in puerto rico where it's like we see support in the aftermath but then you know the support like just goes away after a little while and and it it loses the the eye of the public and then these people are just left in shit literally and and without that much aid and i think that's very sad yeah, I mean, you know, we've we already know that the people surrounding the, in the communities surrounding these operations are already being horribly affected without there being a natural disaster occurring, and mm-hmm. and now one has, and it's it's just seems like the damage is going to be increased exponentially to some degree that I can't even possibly fathom, and I don't know, it's just disgusting because these are communities that basically our government at this point has decided are are not really worth helping and you know they're not people with tons of money they're not people with uh lots of ability to to have like legal recourse you know for some small amount of compensation or or justice in the long run and the the whole situation is incredibly infuriating and upsetting mhm mhm and and so so of course so there's like the environmental damage right there and so in the days leading up to the the hurricane about to make landfall, there was a, a mandatory evacuation for about 1.5 million people, I believe, that were going to be in the storm's path. And uh, unfortunately, despite this mandatory evacuation, all of these state prisons decided not to evacuate their prisoners, not not to get them out of harm's way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... It just, I mean, it just goes to show the the value that they put on the lives of these prisoners, and just to think that that people could be locked, literally locked in cages and left to drown, and yeah, and just the fact that the 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 government doesn't view their lives worth more than the effort it would take to evacuate them. They, you know, they listed some some really just flimsy excuse of like, well, having all these prisoners on buses on congested highways could be a that could be a public safety issue, and it's like, no, they just didn't want to spend the effort and the, and the time and the money that it would take to actually value uh, evacuate these these people, which again most you know communities of color are are locked up in the industrialized prison system so that's another conversation and other residents of the state that were just sort of left behind to drown are of course a lot of the animals that were in agricultural facilities so as of september 18th uh this this article from newsobserver.com states that hurricane florence drowns 5500 pigs and 3.4 million chickens and the numbers are expected to rise that is quite a few. So these are animals that farmers left behind to to potentially drown if the floodwaters reach them. And in fact, they weren't even sort of left to fend for themselves. They they get locked into the the big you know sheds the facilities that they're in because if they if they float out it creates this PR nightmare. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're not even given a fighting chance. Like they're they're basically guaranteed to die if these waters come in. 
And so, Paul, I don't even know what to say about this. I was doing a lot of research trying to figure out who's helping these animals, who's doing what, coming across so much footage of, of dead animals floating and rescue efforts. And, you know, I, I don't subject myself to, to gory animal agriculture footage very often. And these were not gory, but they, they, they hit me in a way emotionally that I have not been affected by footage of animal suffering in quite some time. Like it, it, I had like a very bleak evening of researching this story. It, it's just was such a, monumental loss of life in such a meaningless way and such a just disgusting way and a, a gross way. And one that really highlights how little value these animals have in our system that they would rather let these animals drown and, and recoup the, the insurance and make it a tax write-off than actually save these animals. Not, of course, that these animals would get saved and put into a sanctuary or anything like that. But I don't know. To me, it just makes me think about all the times we hear like the farmers saying, like, well, we treat these animals like they're our family. Like we treat yeah. them really well. They're not a value, you know, they're not a value to us if we treat them poorly and they get sick, which of course that statement alone sort of highlights that they're only a value of you insofar as you can profit off of their dead bodies. But mm -hmm. but this is like it it just really shows how false that narrative is because if you did treat them like family, you would not leave them behind to die because it would take a little bit of extra effort to do so to save them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Andy, I wanted to bring this up because this was brought to my attention by one of my friends who had shared with me this post on Instagram that was like, cause, cause I saw before, even before this, I did see like, like you were saying a lot of, V my vegan friends on Instagram posting like, Oh, look how horrible this is. And, and similar to what you were saying, Andy, like this is how we treat animals. Like we're, we literally just leave them to die and, and all those things. And then this other, this other kind of from a different perspective, I guess this was brought to my attention, a post from a non-vegan that was like, Oh, th these animals need, these animals in North Carolina need your help. And it was kind of all about, how different ways you could donate like feed and hay and, and specific like, um, animal specific food for specific animals to different farms to kind of help them out. And I wanted to bring it up, Andy, because I feel like on a surface level, it seems like it's a good thing. Like, it seems like it's like, Oh, why wouldn't I want to help these animals that, that have just gone through this thing that probably don't like, maybe all of their, their food was destroyed. Maybe their, their homes were destroyed. So they need more hay to, to blah, 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 blah. And all that stuff. And I feel like on the, on a very base level, it seems like it's a good thing, but then it's kind of like you're, what you're really doing is you're helping the, like you're basically you're not directly giving money to the farmers, but you are making it so that they don't have to spend money on these things that they need to spend money on. Like they need to buy the food that was destroyed. They need to buy the hay and the, they, they need to rebuild these, these um, facilities that were destroyed. So it's like, if they want their business to survive, they need to do that. So what you're doing is you're kind of just relieving them from having to do that. And I mean, it's also probably not a good sign that like the future farmers of America is the one that's kind of leading this effort to, to do these things. But yeah, so I don't know. I, I thought it was, it was interesting. And I, I guess it's just, is it 
speciesism like that's that's causing but it's not even i don't know it's not even speciesism because it's like non-vegans seeing these cows and being like oh i want to help these cows but then i also want to eat them i feel like that's not speciesism that's just like a i don't know what is it it i mean it reminds me of the discussion we had regarding the plastic straw ban and sort of all this focus on quote-unquote saving the oceans saving the the environment like capital the environment you know in that it's sort of it's only altruistic insofar as you want to save these animals so that you can victimize them at a later time when it personally benefits you no i i I do think you're right about that but if if pressed do you think that someone like a non-vegan would admit that because i i feel like the way that that's framed just makes you seem like such a bad person and i feel like they wouldn't want to admit that that's why like yes i like people it's 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 a good thing in our society i feel like in the unit in the the unis in the united states it's a good thing to be seen as like an animal lover that's something that everyone wants to say that they are not everyone that's something that a lot of people want to say that they are. They're animal lovers. So I feel like, is it just like a, is it like a facade? Is it, is it that people genuinely feel like they're, they're doing a good thing by doing this, not just for themselves, but for other people, because the way that you frame it, Andy, and I agree with you that this is actually what's happening is that people are just doing these things so that they can continue this system. But I think that a lot of people genuinely do think that they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm, doing a good thing because I'm helping these animals. That's an interesting point, Paul, uh, because the post that you showed me does say like help farm animals, farm animals need your help, etc. But I think a lot of people, they they might be thinking, oh, I'm just helping animals, not really thinking of the fact that you're basically helping to continue a very exploitive system. But I think a lot of people could just be thinking about it in terms of I'm trying to help the farmer. Like, I'm trying to help out small business. I'm trying to help out someone that's just doing their job. And that that might be one of the main motivations because in our society, at least within a certain sector of people, this idea of small business, and I'll say capital, you know, capital, small, capital business, as like this sort of vague <laughs> entity, just like the environment, people are like, small business is good. It's like, well, there could be really bad small businesses that do horrible things, but all of a sudden, because they're a small local business, that that means it's a good thing. So so I wonder if that could be like one of the, the motivations as well. It's like, I'm just trying to help out these small farmers. That's I, I am I have no doubt that that's that's wrapped up in all this, Andy. But like this post specifically says, that, like the heading is North Carolina farm animals need your help, and there's just a big picture of a cow. You know, it's like they they are putting forward the idea that you are helping the animals, but but really what you're doing is you are helping the farmers. You're helping them not have to shell out the money that they're going to have to shell out one way or the other. Or or that money, that stuff is going to need to get bought one way or another, you know? So it's like you're not helping the animals. You're helping the farmers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're definitely not wrong. I, I think that, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I pointed out that headline, but I still wonder if people make the leap to the farmers. But, but I think, yeah, ultimately it's probably just this vague sense of I want to help animals. Yeah. And I mean, maybe in some level, it's to sort of lessen our collective guilt to, to, you know, perpetuate this idea that we care about the animals that we eat, 
that we want to help these animals that we eat. That's true. I think you I I think you might be onto something with that, Andy, because I do think that, you know, it does we see it in the like the the movies of talking to farmers and stuff and it does get justified. And I think it's not just farmers that do this. It's it's the the everyday meat consumer that is saying oh i buy the free ranges you know it's like you are you're right you're 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 trying to lessen your own guilt by saying oh this animal lived a great life and like oh i actually helped i actually helped this animal this this animal out a little bit before i then had them slaughtered and cooked and eaten yeah so where that leaves us then are what about the vegan that that sees all this stuff that's going on and they're wondering well, is there anyone like from a vegan perspective that's trying to help these animals in some regard? Are they trying to rescue any animals that may have escaped and survived these floodwaters? So I did a little research there, and everyone seemed to point towards Brother Wolf Animal Rescue as sort of leading the response to this whole thing. And so I guess I just want to give Brother Wolf a plug. We will put a, a link to their website and their specific page about their rapid response team, which is the one that's responding to this this horrible situation right now. And, you know, Brother Wolf is actually mainly a companion animal like rescue and no-kill shelter. But in this instance, they are uh, taking in some rescued pigs. They are they are prepared to take in some chickens, but I guess from what I hear from my, my friend that works there, they have not found any chickens alive at this point, unfortunately, of the 3.4 million chickens that died. And so Brother Wolf seems to be doing some great stuff. You can see a lot of videos of them motoring around in a little motorboat, finding animals, doing what they can. Uh, they also did a huge effort to move any animals that were in their care out of, un unlike these <laughs> agricultural facilities, they said, this hurricane's coming. We need to do our best to find new homes for these animals in our care. So they put out a call for, for you know, short-term foster homes so that they could get the animals out of harm's way, which it seems like the appropriate thing to do. And so they, it seems like they've been doing some really good stuff. And, you know, we've been generally a fan of the work that they've been doing over the years and, and doing their events and, and whatnot. So, so that's really cool to see. And also Skylands Animal Sanctuary, all the way from up in New Jersey. Uh, Mike was down there and has been posting that he rescued several dogs and at least one cow. And uh, Paul, this... This, you know, they find this cow. There's footage of this. This cow is up to their eyeballs in water, just like barely surviving. And um, it's just, again, it was such heartbreaking footage that really sort of got to me in in a way that has not that something has not gotten to me in a while. Mm. Uh, and and so Brother Wolf has been doing a lot of the rescuing, getting a lot of help from other sanctuaries. And there have been other sanctuaries that have sort of stepped to the plate and said. Hey, we will take in animals that you rescue. So Arthur's Acres and Ziggy's Refuge Animal Sanctuary have already taken in some of the animals as well. And uh, Daniel Turbert from the Sentient Project, he has been driving around in his boat and, and helping some animals as well and has posted some live videos. They found a deer that was basically clinging for dear life on the 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 half destroyed roof of some sort of building and the deer had clearly been there for probably several days and had no food or fresh i don't know if, if 
if you could say the water that they're in is fresh water because it's probably contaminated horribly. Uh, and then the last group that I'll mention, A Well-Fed World, is actually raising funds to donate to sanctuaries that are taking in these animals. And they're actually currently doing a matching donation campaign up to $25,000. So uh, people can donate to them and, and get their money doubled. So we'll post a link to all of these these organizations and people can poke through and see which ones they feel are worthy of their donations if they if they have the means to do so. So, yeah, I don't know. It's nice to know that there are groups that are out there actively working to help these animals. And I don't know. It's it's Andy, I got to admit something to you, though, because I, I think this is a rare moment of and I'm not I don't think I'm being negative, but a rare moment of cynicalness, cynicism, that's the word I'm looking for. Like because I love I love animal sanctuaries and I I, I think that they all do tremendous no, I shouldn't say all of them, but I think that the ones that we talk about regularly, you know, it's like they do tremendous work. I think they have like a lot of them have amazing goals and, and the education that they do is amazing. But when I just, you know, it's like when you read that there were 5,500 pigs and 3.4 million chickens that drowned, it's just like, that's, that's just so much more than any sanction, like any, every animal sanctuary, I feel like combined could not hold that many animals. And this is just like this one instance where this happened. And, and I don't know, it's hard not to feel the, the extreme bleakness of this situation and and almost i don't know for for me having a moment of almost being like what's even like the point this is just like such a tremendous loss and it it almost seems like not that i don't think that every single one of those animals deserves to have a shot at not dying but it's just so such a monumental amount yeah yeah i mean it definitely highlights the immensity of the oppression of animals um i mean like to put it this way that's you know 3.4 million chickens seems immense we kill 24 and a half million chickens a day for food in the u.s hmm. you know so, yeah. so even that 3.4 millions is is a drop in the bucket but that's true i mean i don't think i don't think you're being negative but it's it's almost two separate things to consider it's like, okay, obviously, if if these 3.4 million chickens escaped and were not killed as they were, would we be able to take them in? No, of course not. And n- no sanctuary, no matter the amount of funding they have, would be able to take in all of those animals. But I am glad that those sanctuaries that can take in some animals exist because for those individuals, it means the world to them and it changes their world. And yeah. I'm glad that out of this incredibly horrible situation, some animals have been able to gain their freedom. Yeah, you're right. You know, it, it's sad to me that this event couldn't have some sort of silver lining in that, oh, this is going to destroy the, 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 the poultry industry or whatever it might be, because it's just going to be recouped with, you know, maybe some people will go under, but for the most part, it seems like it's going to be a tax write off and an insurance write off. So uh, unfortunately, we don't get any sort of silver lining in that regard, but hopefully the stories about this coming out will show people just how little the average American values the life of animals. And and hopefully it can turn on some light bulbs and plant some seeds 
for people that had not previously thought about that. You're right. You're right, Andy. And and I think I was being I think I was being a bit speciesist because if this was, you know, if this was about humans, I think I would say even like just one human surviving out of that number would be better than none. Yeah. So sorry about that. Sorry, right. dear sorry, dear listener. And dear <laughs> dear Andy. <laughs> All right. Well, with that said, I think we'll we'll put that to bed. We'll keep people updated on any rescue efforts if anything of note comes about. But again, definitely go check out the links to those organizations and and see if there's one that you would like to donate to. Paul, before we get in to this massive main discussion, we have massive. a couple of thank yous to give out. So we got to give a thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. So huge thank you to now. Normally, Paul, we don't say last names, but I feel like this is not this person's actual last name. And if it is amazing, might not, might not be their first name either. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, so huge thank you to Dog Photog, <laughs> Lexa VD and Ryan K. Thank you. And and these three amazing individuals have joined on to our fantastic Patreon Beardo crew. Everybody in this crew is donating at least a dollar a month to our Patreon campaign. And what that does is it helps us to make our podcast more accessible to the deaf and hearty hearing through transcriptions and also just more sustainable for us in the long run and take care of those expenses that we do incur with our, our little podcast. That it's just it's just the two of us, Paul. We're doing everything. We're, we're preparing the apps. We're doing the uh, we're doing the editing. We're doing all the stuff. We're posting on the social media. So it's a lot of work, and we definitely appreciate the helping hands that so many people are willing to to give to us to make that happen. And of course, you don't you don't get nothing in return for that, Paul. Everyone who signs <laughs> up does get access to our Patreon feed, which means you get all of our bonus episodes. And we are we are very much due for an August bonus episode. Oh um, boy. And we it's are September, very much, Andy. <laughs> and we are very much due for a September bonus episode, which we'll have coming out, I believe, next week. So stay tuned for that. And yeah, if you want to get in on that action, just head over to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo. How do you spell that, Paul? B-E-A-R-D-O, beardo. Yes. Beardvegans.com slash beardo. You'll find your options. You can do the recurring. You can do a one-time. You can pick up a shirt or a sticker if you want. So uh, thank you again to everyone that helps us out. All right, Andy, let's get into this whopper of a main discussion, this vegan whopper. Okay. I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Before we even get into this discussion, I'm wondering your basic impression. If someone came up to you and told you that they were vegan-ish or veganish. <laughs> that they were veganish, V E G A N I S H. What would you assume that means for them in their personal daily practice or ethical philosophy? I would assume that that means they ate like 90% vegan and like 10% not vegan. Now, I would guess that that means the 10% is not like. 10% of their time they're having something not vegan, I would guess that it means that there's like a, f a couple or a few products that they eat that are not vegan that they have regularly. Like, like maybe the person eats an egg in the morning and then other than that, they're all vegan. Or maybe they have like yogurt, but other than that, they're all vegan. That's what I would guess. I have the same impression. I would assume that if someone told me they were veganish, 
that it would mean the same thing as if someone said, I'm mostly vegan or I'm maybe, maybe even if they said flexitarian or reducitarian or something like that. But I guess we can get to that. So Paul, <laughs> the, the reason that we're bringing this up is there was recently a Facebook post from the vegan strategist, Tobias Lienert. Sorry, <laughs> Tobias. You think I know how to pronounce your last name at this point? <laughs> I have not. So this Facebook post has a photo of Tobias wearing a shirt that says veganish on it. And the text accompanying this photo says, trying on the veganish label. Maybe it's a better label if we even need labels than vegan. It's a fuzzy concept anyway, smiley face. Accepting some built-in fuzziness may make us quibble less about who belongs or who doesn't belong to the club. And then parentheses, no, I didn't change my diet slash lifestyle. I still consider myself vegan. And then for more info, and then he puts a link to the FAQ page on his website. So, Paul, Tobias posted this photo, posted this text, and the comment section... <laughs> Broke out the pitchforks and the torches, <laughs> and a, a small war ensued. And I, people brought up so many interesting points that I thought this this is ripe for discussion for us. So this text now, tell me if you think my reading of this is is wrong, but this text seems to apply veganish to a definition different than the one that you and I both had. This one is basically saying there's some ethical gray areas, and if we apply the word veganish to it, that like lets people know that it's not. I don't know that that there's that perfection is not achievable. I don't, like, what do you think? Yeah, I I think that along with like uh, what we've talked about in the past, which is a loosening of the definition of vegan. Like, I think that's more, that's what it speaks to is it's kind of like making the definition of vegan less, less strict in order to make it seem more attractive to people, make it seem less daunting to people who aren't already vegan. Like, I think that that's what Tobias is going, going for with this. And, and, you know, I think that that runs with what a lot of, his and the joys goal is, is to, what is it to make, create a vegan world by 2050 or, or create, make half of the, the world population vegan by 2050. Is that what it is? Well, I think like you could accomplish that in a day if you just widen the definition of veganism to anyone <laughs> that eats any plant matter. <laughs> this is true. But I think, cause here's where I feel like Tobias and our, because we both have, I believe that we both have the same end goal, which is a vegan world. And I think one of our giant differences, and I think that this is going to be important for this discussion. One of our giant differences is that, Andy, a lot of times we take a pretty firm stance that loosening the definition of veganism and extending it to reducitarianism and, and embracing that kind of stuff, that 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 people will get to that stage and then will halt at that stage and i think that tobias and people along with uh, like like melanie joy and, and other such people their idea is that if you can get enough people to reduce meat there will be a tipping point and then even those people that have reduced meat will then eventually just become vegan as well like you'll reduce meat to a point where everyone will just then 
go vegan. And I, I think, Andy, we see less of a, a less of a clear roadmap towards that idea, like what those middle steps would be similar to, you know, like welfare, like you, you're just going to make the cages larger and larger until, and then there's some question mark step and then veganism, like no cages. So I don't know. I, I, I see where I can see why he's promoting this thing, but I don't know that it's, I don't believe that it's going to have that desired effect. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, knowing what we know of Tobias, I, I agree with you that he is someone that advocates for a slight loosening of the the rules of veganism, of the, you know, what's what's an acceptable amount of animal products to knowingly eat, and, you know, it generally extends to things like, what if someone serves you your Taco Bell and there's a little bit of cheese in it that you didn't order from. Is it better to just show your non-vegan friends that that veganism isn't that hard and just just eat the cheese or try and scrape it off what you can rather than having them them reorder it? Things like that is, you know, I don't think he's like, I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong, but I don't think he's like everyone should all of a sudden like incorporate an egg every morning or something like that. So I think that like this this veganish label doesn't speak so much to like a loosening the impression that I'm getting from this post, at least from like a loosening of veganism, but rather just sort of this acknowledgement that despite the fact that we think that like you're either vegan or you're not, you're either exploiting animals or you're not. That's sort of, you know, it's like Gary Francione's thing. It's like you're either actively engaging in the exploitation of animals or you're vegan and there's no third option. That's like, that's Francione's very black and white way of thinking about this. But that doesn't necessarily take into account that like, well, some people don't look up the source of their mono diglycerides when they're buying bread or some people don't care about the bugs that they hit with their car when they're traveling. But other people might say you're not vegan if you drive a car because you're going to hit some bugs or that you're not vegan if you walk across the grass because maybe you'll crush a worm or a small rodent or something like that. And that there are these smaller areas that are not so clear cut and that and that by by like internalizing this this fuzziness to the vegan thing that it might prevent all of the the fighting the infighting that goes on when people argue about certain things like i don't know maybe even the the debate around the impossible burger and the the animal testing of the heme in the impossible burger that that's the impression that i get from this Facebook post. And I think if I knew nothing about Tobias's personal philosophies, I, I, I would think it's exclusively applying to that, even though I do know that he is someone that's, you know, maybe more along the lines of like the, the vegan bros, right? They had that article that's like, you don't need to check if your alcohol is vegan or not, because doing so has a minimal help for the animals. And it has a, a, a maximum increase in the view that veganism is hard to do. Andy, you know, like when you, if that's not how I took it, but that in that sense, it's like, I don't know if I completely disagree with that idea because I mean, it's like our entire show is literally talking about these, these 
issues that are not black and white. And, and I think we would both, I don't mean to speak for you, Andy, but we would both wholeheartedly agree that there are many issues that are very nuanced and are not black and white and maybe don't even have like a, a practical solution to them. But I don't I, like, and maybe I, I like, I do agree that that is something that we should internalize in the movement that we are not perfect and that we should be striving to be better knowing that knowing that we're not we're never going to reach perfection but i think i don't see why we couldn't do that without a relabeling because to me i think that relabeling it as veganish Here's the reason why I think I disagree with you that that's what veganish, that's even, even what Tobias, even that's what he's trying to get at, or that's what anyone's trying to get at. Because I don't think like the, 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 the suffix ish means like sort of, and sort of vegan. I feel like to, to people who would not be, you know, in the know about all of these nuance issues that are going on in the vegan movement. To those people that don't know about these things, I think you could ask any of them what they think veganish means, and they're going to say what we said at the at the like a few minutes ago when we said it's someone that eats mostly vegan but then eats non-vegan food sometimes. So it's like I don't I don't think that if if that's truly what people are trying to get at with the veganish label, I think that that name is not is not the appropriate name for it, and and I think rather you can you can like make a shift in the attitude in the movement without having to change the the name of it, I think. Yeah. And I think that I agree that I think that the vast majority of people would see veganish and think it, it's basically some sort of flex, flexitarian or reducitarian or, or something that rather than acknowledging the imperfections of veganism or the fact that vegans still have more work to do despite being vegan in, in their general practice, I think that most people would say that this is a definition that gives a pass to to knowingly and actively exploiting animals in some way, whether that is eating eggs with your breakfast or saying it's okay to go to the aquarium or the zoo or you know the rodeo or whatever it might be. And and so let's take like a, I guess maybe a little bit of a pause here because this is not the first time that people have used this term veganish. So let me let me walk you through a little bit of history, Paul. I was <laughs> doing a little bit of googling. The first instance that I could find of this label came in November of 2013. So you know, just just under five years ago, and it was from this website called ElephantJournal.com. Veganish, why I am mostly vegan. And then the sort of the, the sub headline there is to say I am vegan would be untruthful. So I'm inventing a new word. <laughs> That's how the language works. <laughs> yeah. So this person is claiming to invent the veganish label. So let's start here. How did this person who's claiming to invent this label, how did they want to apply it? So the article starts off with this person sort of qualifying their beliefs and says, uh, veganish types like me believe in veganism for the same strong reasons that regular vegans do. We want to reduce suffering and lighten our footprint on the planet. Though that is the case, I still have a taste for honey, for dairy, and also for fish. And blood. Which disqualifies me from veganism. 
Let me be plain. I avoid these foods and eat them only rarely, but I do eat them. I try to think of my diet in terms of percentages. If I eat vegan and healthy, which are not necessarily the same thing, 95% of the time, then I've gone a long way towards sustaining my body and my principles. If I slip below 90%, I start asking myself some hard questions. So that's interesting that you threw out that 10%, Paul, like early mm -hmm. on when I asked you definition. I think when people preach extremes, they deny the fact of their humanity and are driven to worse trespasses than they ever would be otherwise. In other words, if I wasn't willing to say what I'm saying, I think I might end up in a closet with a BLT, heavy on the B. But when I say I do it, all those cravings are allowed to be addressed and released, mostly harmlessly into the atmosphere. I resent when anyone professes to be something they are not. Everyone is loath to admit they're imperfect or make mistakes or sometimes have contradictory views. Well, allow me to hoist the torch of imperfection here. I'm trying awfully hard to do my best, and sometimes I don't manage it, but you can be sure I'll cop to it either way. In the final analysis, honesty, not slogan shouting, self-punishing, or finger-pointing is what's going to get us where we need to be. Can I say something, Andy? Go for something it. that really, really ground my gears. <laughs> when the when this author says they deny the fact of their humanity, it is our humanity that is what's allowing us to make the choice to not like always have to go with our base instincts and always have to like satiate all of our needs and and have these options. I feel like that is what our humanity is, is that we do have these choices and we have these options so we can choose not to participate in these things just because they feel good to us. Like if anything, I think the author the what the author should have said is they this denies our base animal instincts of always getting the thing that we desire you know like getting the thing that we want oh that's that's an interesting point i had not thought about that but thanks for bringing it up so i don't know but it's it's kind of interesting this idea that denying ourselves something entirely and pretending that we don't desire it pushes us into this extreme where we'll just sort of go really far in the other direction albeit secretly but if you sort of acknowledge, you know what, sometimes I just really crave eggs and I'll eat one egg a month or something like that, then that's okay. But that if you didn't acknowledge that fact, you're sort of pretending to be something that you're not and you're just going to go in the closet and eat 12 eggs a day or something like that. I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that assessment of the working of human psychology? I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, but, and I'm, I'm not going to deny that those feelings exist for people. Like I'm sure there are vegans out there that have been vegan for 50 years that occasionally will still be like, Hmm, like man, a cheese dairy cheese pizza taste would taste really good right now. Like I'm, I'm positive that there are people that are out there that are like that. But to say that, like, just because we really want something means that it's morally okay. I feel like it's such a, a weird, a weird metric, a weird way to measure how we should create our morals or whether something measure, whether something is morally okay. It's like, <laughs> it's like you would say to this person, like, yeah, but don't you think it's, it's unethical or don't you think it's morally wrong to cause suffering and to kill another, another being? And is their response? Yeah, but I really want to like, it does that, does that make it okay? 
I don't think that this author would disagree with you. I think that this author is trying to say, let's embrace the complexity of humanity and the fact that we can be very contradictory in our views. And that, like, I, I bet this author, like, as the, the beginning of this piece says, you know, I believe in being veganish for the same reasons people believe in vegan. We want to reduce suffering and lighten our footprint on the planet. So I bet if you said to this person, hey, don't you think it's causing suffering if we consume animals they would say yes and you say don't you think that's bad they would probably also say yes you know in the same way that someone could be like you know this is not the exact same thing but you know someone could be like i know smoking is bad for me but i'm gonna do it anyway you know obviously there's not that direct victim i guess unless the cigarettes are tested on animals but you know it's like one of those things where it's like we we you know okay here's a better example paul i bet 99 people out of 100 would say sweatshops are horrible, but 99% of people still purchase clothing from sweatshops, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it. I don't think it. the fact that someone says that they're against sweatshops isn't canceled out by the fact that they purchase sweatshop clothing. You know, obviously, it means they have a lot of work to do. But it's like those two things can exist in someone's mind, but they, you know, I don't know. You know, I guess, okay, I'm trying to get my thoughts here <laughs> because people would say it's the same thing as saying I love animals, but I also eat them. And I think that those those, those thoughts can coexist in someone's head. It doesn't necessarily mean that they line up, but I think that it's like people are, they can acknowledge that they can hold contradictory views. And I think that that is sort of what this piece is trying to get at. Like, I don't think that this, like, what I'm basically what I'm trying to say is, I don't think this author would deny anything that you just said. I think the author would go, it's not the best that I choose to eat fish and dairy and honey. But I okay. do it anyway. But here's my, here's my issue, Andy. Because I, yes, you're right. And, and do I do things that are contradicting to my morals? Yes, definitely. I'm sure. And, and, but I think that when I see a piece like this, what makes me upset about it is instead of the reaction being, I am doing something contradictory, I should try to be better. The reaction is, I am doing something contradictory, so let me try to come up with some logical explanation about why what I'm doing is actually morally okay. Because I feel like that's what that's what the point of this is, is it's this person having these contradictions, but then finding a way to justify it to themselves. And, and I think that that's like, that's so aggravating. Like it's aggravating to me that this person is saying that like this person wouldn't be trying to make this argument about something that they do. I, I imagine this person wouldn't be making this argument about something that they do if it was, you know, like illegal or seen as socially unacceptable, but they're still like, oh, but I really like doing this thing. They wouldn't make this big post about saying like, but because I really like doing this, that's why it's okay. Like they can only get away with this because it's socially acceptable because it's legal to do, you know, like, like sweatshop labor is legal to, to I mean, it's like it people there are people doing it legally even if it is morally reprehensible yeah no i i think that that is definitely a great point paul and i will show you no resistance on that one whatsoever <laughs> like like it's just i i i want to change like the way that we 
react to things as a society. It's not like I'm the only person that's doing this. I shouldn't say, shouldn't frame it like that, but like, I want to see this change where it's like, when we're confronted with something, instead of trying to justify it, where we try to be better when we're confronted with our own hypocrisy, because everyone is being hypocritical about something. Everyone's contradicting their morals about something. And it's like, that's the truth. And we should be trying to be better about that rather than working so hard to try and justify it. Yeah, no, that's definitely a great point. I'm raging, Andy. GPP. Paul's on 10 (laughs) right now. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on down the timeline. So that was from November of 2013. February 2014, uh, OneGreenPlanet.org publishes Why It's Okay to Be Vegan-ish. And essentially, it's basically saying it's okay to take smaller steps. You know, going vegan all at once can be overwhelming. Uh, And then the article ends with saying, and ignore any vegetarian or vegan who tries to shame you for not doing enough. You are doing plenty. So so this is sort of a different implementation of this vegan-ish label. Like, it's not saying it's okay. I don't know. Like, the vibe that I got from it was basically saying it's okay to take small steps towards the end goal of going vegan. And you can recognize that you're doing something good, even if it's not 100% perfect right now. Mm-hmm. Which I felt like is different. It wasn't so much a justification of the bad parts of what someone's doing, but about embracing the good that someone's doing, which I think mm-hmm. is something that we we advocate for all the time, like like applauding the small steps that people make. Like you don't give them a pass for the the bacon that they're still eating, but you encourage them for the good steps that they are currently making. Yes, I, I agree with you. I agree with that assessment of this article. I'm about to, and, and you know, it's like, if you, this is actually what I thought you were going to ask me the very first question. It, you asked me what I think veganish is. I thought you were going to ask me, how would I react if someone came up to me and said, I'm veganish. And, and I think I would, you know, it's like, like you were just saying, I would applaud them for the steps that they're taking while n- being careful not to say like, oh, and you don't need to do anything else. And this is such a nip to pick, Andy, especially because this article, I think, is sending a, a an infinitely better message than the previous one. But that last line, Andy, that last word, plenty, you're doing plenty. Like, I just, again, this is such a, 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 a small thing, but I wish instead it said, like, you're on a great path or you're yes. on the right path or something like that. Because, again, like, as much as this article is encouraging smaller steps and being realistic about it for, for many people's journey, which I is perfectly fine. Again, it's like, why, why, why do we feel the need to, to promote an end to growing? Like, why is that such an important thing for us in, in our society that we need to finish growing at some point? Yeah, no, I I think that's a great point. GPP again, Paul. GPPA. <laughs> yeah no no no. I, I agree with you i think that if they had just left off that little bit at the end it'd be something that we'd much more be able to wholeheartedly get behind but yeah like yeah I, you know it's like one of those things where you don't want to overwhelm someone and tell them they're not doing enough but you also want to encourage them to keep going yeah yeah well look at this next one Andy, because i think i'm feeling pretty good about this next one uh on the surface 
Okay. Are you though? Okay. So, so that was <laughs> that was February 2014. October 2014. Veganish: The Omnivore's Guide to Plant-Based Cooking is published by Paul. Do you want to take a stab at this name? Miel Shinier Cohen Rose. Sorry, Miel. Yeah. Okay. So that is the chef of this, the author of this book, and it offers, it's like a vegan cookbook, but it offers omnivorous options for recipes. So it's, it's not a straight vegan cookbook. That's like, Hey, it's, it's cool if you're just working on it or if you know, you don't have to go fully vegan reading this, like this is a good place to start. Like it's basically saying, here's the vegan recipe, but also if you want to throw in some meat or eggs, you know, I didn't look through all the recipes, so I don't know which omnivorous versions they 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 allow for, but this is what I gather from the comments on on Amazon. So I so Paul, when I see that, when I was looking at this one, I was like, this is not the thing that I want to give to someone. Like I I understand this idea of being like, it's cool if you want to dip your toe in the water and ease into it and. Don't worry about being 100% perfect, but then one that's basically like explicitly endorsing consuming animals, whether it's their their flesh or their, you know, secretions, whatever it might be. I'm not down with that. Like, I think that that's a bad version of veganish. Yeah, no, I was, Andy, I was looking at the wrong bullet points, and this is not the one that I wholeheartedly agree with. I, I think that, <laughs> yes, uh-oh. So I hope people haven't already started typing up their emails and saying how I endorse this this meat cookbook. So, yeah. sorry, sorry. All right, so then uh, I found this website, Very Veganish, which posted something around the same time in 2014. And in it, in their about section, they say about 5% of what we eat is not plant-based. And they also explicitly say that they're not, quote, ethical vegans either. So this, this I think, is in line with what we would assume someone is if they say that they're vegan-ish, which is some smaller percentage of their diet is consuming some sort of animal product of some kind. Andy, can I say something? Yeah. Like, because 5% has been thrown around a few times at this point, I... I suspect that someone that considers themselves veganish is eating more than 5% animal products, animal-based products, because 5%, that's not that much. And like, if someone was only eating 5%, I feel like that would be one meal. No, that would be like a small part of a meal once a week. I feel like that would be 5%. Well, let's say you eat, a hundred meals in a month. You know, some days, some days you have four meals, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Five of those would be not vegan meals. Yeah. So that's like uh, slightly more than like, once a week. Yeah. So that's so. Really, like, like ah, to me, Andy, that seems unre- un- unrealistic. Like if someone is like going to eat animal products, why would they be like, I'm only going to eat them once a week? Like, to me, Andy, that requires more discipline than just being full vegan. Like, if I really wanted those things, if I was like, oh, I know it's okay for me to eat ice cream because I eat it, but I'm only going to eat it once every year. Like, I feel like that requires <laughs> so much more discipline than just being like, no, I'm not going to eat these things. That makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. And it, it reminds me of, you know, over the years, Paul, I've had some friends that have, have stopped being vegan. 
And in the beginning, almost always they just say, you know, don't worry, I'm only going to have a small amount of organic, local, free-range chicken because it's, you know, I felt like my health was suffering or something like that from from being fully vegan. And then within, like, two months, I see them eating giant tubs of, like, cheese ball puffs and stuff like that. And, and like, you know, no, no, like, health judgment or anything, but I feel like people really quickly slip off that that bandwagon of like, I'm only going to eat like one egg a month because my doctor said I need it for B12 or, you know, whatever it might be. I, I, so I basically, I agree with you and I've seen it in practice anecdotally that it's really hard for people to only eat a little bit of something. Yeah. Because I think, you know, and, and I think not necessarily to the individual's fault. I think that that we see what you're seeing, Andy, makes sense because once you start eating a little bit of meat, it then or or any animal product, it then reopens you up to these some of these social situations that you might not be able to be a part of or that you might not have been a part of when you were vegan. And once you're in those social situations, I feel like it's all it's all downhill from there. Yeah. So I, I think it makes sense. And you know, at the beginning of this conversation, Andy. I was going to pose this question to you. I was going to say, <laughs> which would you prefer someone said to you that they're reducitarian, flexitarian, or veganish? Oh, and I was going to say veganish because I was like, again, veganish to me means like five, 10%. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I don't think people are actually veganish. <laughs> yeah. At least in the way that we're kind of defining it in the way that I mused that perhaps Tobias was getting at, which is more like being vegan is inherently veganish because you're embracing the fuzziness of some of the ethical gray areas. Mm -hmm. Yes. But in terms of someone that's like, I am actively choosing to eat an egg every morning. No. Which brings us yeah. to an article from February 2016. <laughs> There's a new veganish diet that's changing the rules. And what this is, it basically advocates for veganism, which we did a whole episode on at some point. And this is one that's basically like, hey, I'm fully vegan, but I eat eggs. And so this is like a totally different way of, of using the term veganish. And this is one that is sort of actively embracing the consumption of animal products. It's not saying... Hey, we know it'd be better if you ate 100%. It's saying it's actually a little healthier if you eat an occasional egg because it provides good stuff for you. So, so that's like a totally different use of the word veganish. It's almost as if the word veganish is even more like confusing and convoluted than just keeping the word vegan with all of its non perfections, you know? It's like veganish, it seems like, means nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think that the fact that vegan is sort of like, in 1944, Donald Watson coined the term vegan. You know, the <laughs> fact that people can sort of just sort of revert to that and be like, here's our textbook definition, and this is exactly what it means. I think it makes it easier. But when you have a, a term that is supposedly coined five years ago, people can do whatever they want with it. Yeah, and, and it can mean good. whatever. And I think that's one of our problems that we had with reducitarian as well. It's like, okay, we get the general idea, but what does it mean? And at what point can you call yourself reducitarian? Like, what percentage of your meat, uh, like, what percentage of your your daily meals include some amount of animal products that you can say you're a reducitarian? Or what amount of your shoe collection contains leather that you can call yourself reducitarian? And I think the same thing with veganish. It's like, okay, well, what's the difference? What, like, what's ethically, what's the difference between 
10% of your diet containing some sort of animal products and 12% of your diet containing some sort of animal products. It's like a pretty small increase, but at what point does it end? Because then it's like, okay, well, 15 is pretty close to 12, but that's pretty far from 10. And, you know, it's just like one of those things where you're like, where exactly is the line? And I get that there's perhaps some fuzziness in the details of, of vegan but it's one that sort of is like vegan to me is saying I'm actively striving to not use animals in my daily life, whether consuming them, whether using them for entertainment, whether wearing them. And it sort of like describes an action of, of like sort of these base rules. Like I probably am not eating meat, dairy or eggs or honey and whatnot. But then like, I just sort of, my thought process whenever I'm doing anything in my life is also taking into account how does this affect animals? And I feel like veganish and reducitarian just doesn't really get at that. And Andy and Andy, like when people say like, Oh, 5% of what I'm eating is, is not vegan 10%. Andy, that doesn't mean anything because 5% could be 5% by weight. Are you weighing all of your food? It could be 5% of the choices that you're making. So like the variety out of all of the variety of things that I eat, 5% of those are not vegan. It could be 5% of your meals are including something that's not vegan. It doesn't actually mean anything. And it just, it's just a number that people are throwing out to kind of like, to me, it seems like to make themselves seem like they're doing more than they probably actually are. Yeah, and I and I hate to ever be perceived as like discouraging people from taking really good steps. Like again, our our general fallback is to really encourage people in whatever it is that they're doing and and help them along that vegan path. But it, you know, and I I don't want a vegan club, but it also feels like there's some on some level, despite all the crap that vegans get from society, there is this appeal to veganism. And people really want that label for themselves sometimes. And that's why we see things like vegan or segan popping up. Because there is some there is something appealing about that label that people want to apply to themselves without going sort of the bare minimum that one would expect someone to go in order to qualify themselves as vegan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Andy. Like those dumplings I had, I am steamed right now. <laughs> Paul, I can tell because your hair's red. <laughs> You're done. Okay, so just a few more little examples in history before we get back to this whole Tobias example. Kathy Freston, in August of 2016, put out The Book of Veganish, The Ultimate Guide to Easing into a Plant-Based, Cruelty-Free, Awesomely Delicious Way to Eat with 70 Recipes Anyone Can Make. And from what I can tell of this one, it only includes vegan recipes, but the whole tone is basically that it doesn't guilt the reader. So whatever the exact verbiage of that is, I am not 100% sure because I couldn't get an example of a page from this book, but I'm guessing that it's kind of one of those things that's like, hey, it's okay if this isn't, if you're not jumping into full vegan from this book, like try it out, see how you feel, start with three meals a week and increase them type thing. I'm guessing that would be the vibe. That's the vibe I get from the description of this book. Yeah. So this is, this, this is the cookbook that I'm definitely more on board with. Again, like you said, it's like, we're not getting the exact, what, like the exact tone that they're going to cross, but I like this idea. I like the idea that their goal seems to be, to get people to be entirely vegan. And 
Like that's, I feel like the important thing with all of these, cause, cause it's like the people, I, I feel like I'm more concerned about the vegans that are promoting veganish than non-vegans that are promoting veganish. You know, if non-vegans mm-hmm. want to promote being veganish, I'm going to let them do that because if that gets them closer to being vegan and then they got the vegans to then reel them in the, the last, the last 10 yards. But like it's it's the the vegans that are that don't seem to have the end goal of veganism that's what what bothers me the most and this does seem to have that end goal so that's why i'm definitely more on board with this one yeah and, and so paul both kathy freston and miel rose there they're not the only people that had the idea for a veganish cookbook because just a few weeks ago august 24th 2018 holly white put out veganish a gentle introduction to a plant-based diet which seems to have pretty much the same vibe of Kathy Freston's The Book of Veganish. So so anyway, I guess all my point is of of including all these examples is sort of just getting at this thing that we have been continuously saying throughout this conversation, which is veganish doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, and I think that if the goal is to just change the way that we talk about veganism and include include nuances i don't think changing the label is is the right path to go yeah i think that it would be too hard to get people to understand that that it is basically trying to get at what i was trying to get at in terms of the nuances of well there are these fuzzy areas but we should still be striving to be fully vegan and there's sort of some basic ground rules for for lack of a better term that sort of qualify one as being vegan i guess Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so so that brings us back up to Tobias's post, which was trying on the veganish label. Maybe it's a better label if we need labels than vegan, as it's a fuzzy concept anyway. Accepting some built in fuzziness may make us quibble less about who belongs or who doesn't belong to the club. And as I mentioned, the, the pitchforks and the torches came out in full force. Some of the objections were this is why people don't take veganism seriously. Should we just change the term to ethical-ish or anti-racist-ish or anti-sexist-ish, et cetera? Um, someone said, you know, we're all vegan-ish if you dig deep enough, but it's about ethics and intentions. So the the one that was sort of like, should we be anti-racist-ish, anti-sexist-ish, you know, ethical-ish, that seemed to be one that was brought up again and again and again. So I'm wondering, how do you feel about that comparison that people are bringing up? I, I, well, like, obviously they're two different, they're different, they're different movements with different issues and, and different ways of, of resolving those issues. But I think I agree with the, the, the idea of it. And, and because in like, in like, I am Andy, I am someone that would consider myself anti-racist and anti-sexist, but you know, that doesn't make me perfect and that doesn't mean that i don't make errors and i don't say things or or do things that others would deem as problematic and it's like i do want people to to call me out on those things to tell me when i'm doing those things so that i could then grow and be better so it's like that's the attitude that i want veganism to also have like the the same as this attitude that i have for being anti-racist so it's like i i think i do agree with it that it's like we don't need to lessen the ask in order to promote uh 
promote a productive and constructive way of getting to the the solution. Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned that there's sort of, you know, even though there may be like similar roots of oppression, that there are sort of very different everyday practical applications, differences between, say, racism, sexism, veganism, etc. Like, I, I think that sort of what, what trips people up here is that, you know, we tend to think of veganism as this set of rules of things that you must do in your daily life, boxes you have to check off every day to maintain your vegan label. And that means like, I don't consume animals. I didn't go to a rodeo today. I didn't purchase a new leather belt today, things like that. And I think there's less of that for other, you know, there's no other movement. uh, I don't want to say no other movement, but like the majority of other movements are not necessarily defined by your daily consumption habits in the way that veganism often is. And so, so I don't know, like someone brought up this idea that like, well, maybe if we, instead of veganish, why don't we say we're anti-speciesist? Cause that seems more like it's in line with saying I'm anti-racist or anti-sexist or something like that in that it's saying like, I hold these views. Right. But you know, I class myself, classify myself as anti-sexist. Uh, but what if, what if I consume some media that has some sort of sexist messaging in it or some kind of sexist theme, does that mean I'm no longer anti-sexist if I walk into this film and enjoy this film, even if there are some problematic elements to it? Whereas if you're vegan and if you go to a buffet and you throw a hard-boiled egg on your plate, then all of a sudden you are not vegan. Like, I feel like there's like different obstacles to those things. So, so I agree with you that it's that like watering down your ask is probably not a good thing, but I also don't know if the comparison is entirely accurate. Yeah, no, I I get that. But I I will say I do think that there are people I mean there are certainly people who for whom being racist or being sexist is like that is their like their normal reactions to their everyday life. So in some senses I do think it's a part of people's everyday lives. We you said being racist and sexist. Did you mean anti-racist and no, and whatnot? no? I meant or... I meant being racist. Like I'm, I'm. There are people who it's like their reactions to the world around them is just overtly racist and sexist. And for the, and like those people, certainly, if if you were trying to get a person like that to not be racist or to be anti-racist, it would it would involve, I think, a change in their daily routine. But I think it's more about getting about like their attitudes and the way they think about things. Like, okay, obviously there are certain things that are explicitly sexist, for instance. But I think that, you know, to to apply the veganish thinking, it's like, okay, there are certain things that people disagree on on whether you know you should support sex workers or something like that. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't mean that everyone that has differing views on those things is somehow no longer anti-sexist, perhaps. And so I think that that's sort of what the the veganish thing is trying to get at, that there's different ways to practice things. And, and I guess why I feel like the comparison necessarily to like anti-racist, anti-sexist doesn't quite sit well with me because, you know, we don't think about 
like going through our daily life, if I want to consider myself to be anti-racist, that I have to like do these specific things and purchase these specific things throughout the day. You know, it might require, oh, I speak up when someone says a racist joke or I defend someone in public if they're being harassed or or whatever. You know, there are things like that, but it's it, I feel like it's sort of it. It's like a different ask that's being made of people. And that's why people get caught up in it, because like, would you be able to say in my life, I'm I'm sexist 10 percent of the time and anti-sexist the other 90 percent of the time? Like, how would you quantify that? Would that be, oh, I really enjoyed this music video that some people that are feminists have a problem with, but maybe other people embrace as like empowering to women. Like how, how do you define what being five or 10% sexist looks like? Like doesn't being 5% sexist just mean you're sexist? Like, like, so I feel like those comparisons are not apt. So I, I'll preface this by saying, I also don't think that it's like a one-to-one comparison by any means, but I will say, Andy, is that the, the the points you brought up are valid, but is it solely because of the point in time that we are at right now where uh, eating meat, eating dead animals is something that is socially acceptable and n- not to say that racism doesn't exist or sexism doesn't exist because it most certainly does, but in general, being racist is not something that's acceptable, whereas like... If it was something that was more, if we were in a place or time where it was more acceptable, then I think the comparison would be more valid because like you might be someone that is like, oh, I'm against these things. But if you are constantly because you brought up like if you hear uh, like a sexist comment or something like that, then you're going to speak up and say something. But what if you were at a time or place where that's what you heard nonstop throughout the day? Like you probably wouldn't speak up about it every single time. Some might argue that that is something that we hear <laughs> throughout the day. But yes, no, no, no. I, yeah, but like, like, do you know, do you know what I mean though? Because it's like, like I'll give this as, as an example. This is a, 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 a personal example that working in a, like working in a, in a high school, when I was working in a high school, like kids are saying shitty things basically nonstop every single second of every single day and i i did not i'm not gonna say i can't but i did not stop teaching every single time someone said something problematic to address the nature of what they said and why it's problematic i would say don't say that but like you you can't if you're in a situation where it's like you're being surrounded by those things and you have to like did, am I making any sense, Andy? Well, I guess that my my the point, and I think I guess maybe what Tobias would say is that does the fact that you did not address every single time someone said something problematic, does that nullify the fact that you identify as and generally stand up for X Y Z issue? I think to some people it might. So then, so I guess then if there are some people that might, but there are some people that don't. So does that mean that you have to adopt a xyz-ish an anti-xyz-ish <laughs> label and that that would be more accurate no i think it's just being realistic so i feel like that is sort of what the the veganish thing is almost trying to get at which is like it's just being realistic about veganism 
you know, like, so like, do you agree with this idea that either you're vegan or you're not? Is that an accurate statement to say? I think that yes. Yeah. And how do you define veganism? Like, like, (laughs) do you think that there are not situations in which vegans disagree on how one should practice their veganism? Certainly. There certainly are. And then, so are the ones that are the people that disagree, does that make one side of them not vegan anymore, depending on what it might be? I don't think so. Right? So then I don't know if I agree with this. You're either vegan or you're not. Like, I feel like you're either vegan or you're not until someone tells you that you're not vegan for doing some minute thing. Right? Then all of a sudden you're like, but no, but I am vegan. You know, like, just because you say don't consume sugar that may or may not have been processed with bone char and I do, that doesn't make me not vegan anymore. That means that there's this ish at the end of veganism where there is this sort of fuzzy gray area that we might not agree on, but like the practical effects of our everyday application of veganism is pretty much the same. And we just sort of disagree on how far we should take these ethics. Yeah. I I think if, if we truly wanted to follow like a super strict definition of veganism no one would be vegan or very few people would be vegan yeah so i guess i disagree like like i agree and disagree with this statement that you're either vegan or you're not and i think that that's sort of what this the the ish part of veganish is trying to get at that that there are these sort of lines there you know there's like you know, you're you're in some some race or something like that, and everyone has as long as you get past the fifty yard line in this race, you qualify qualify yourself as vegan. But then there's like the fifty one, the fifty two, the fifty three yard mark that that like different people get to, but it you know like doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is not vegan anymore. But there's just some people that practice it in a different way, and I think that that is what this veganish label is trying to get at, and that's what this veganish label is trying to prevent the people that are all past that 50 yard mark from arguing with each other as about the fact that someone should go one extra yard versus turning around, going back across that 50 yard mark and helping other people to complete the marathon and get across that, that finish line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think in that, in that definition of veganish, Andy, I think I disagree with, the implementation of that, because I, I, I do think that it's then saying again, not to bring it back to the same thing I always talk about, but I, I think it's, it's saying that we can stop growing at some point and we can stop trying to be better. Although, okay, okay well, that, there's that, a 54 and a 55 and those, those yard marks keep going, Paul. They do. They keep going forever. This is a infinity yard dash, right? But it, it doesn't like nullify the people that get past the 50 yard mark where the average person would go, that guy is vegan. He doesn't consume animal products knowingly. He doesn't go to the rodeo. He doesn't purchase a new leather belt. Like the sort of the basic benchmarks that people generally consider vegans to obtain. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that those people aren't vegan anymore. And, and I don't think that it's all, and I, I also don't think that that's implying that there is a stopping point. Like as long as people go, these yard marks just keep on going and I can keep going. Even if it's like <laughs> inch by inch, I can keep going. So I, so I disagree with your assertion that this definition of veganish that I'm throwing out there 
means that it implies there's an end of growth at some point. All right. Maybe. I don't know. I I, I just like, <laughs> you know, sometimes when we're having these conversations, I get to a point where I'm like, I feel like no one should be having this conversation. And then I'm like, whoops, we just, we just spent an hour talking about this. It's what we're here to do, Paul. <laughs> we're here to have this pointless conversation so that no pointless. Uh, and I don't mean pointless. Like what we're talking about is not important. I mean, pointless. Like it seems to me like if no one talked about this, we would be in the same exact spot as we are right now where everyone is talking about this because I, Andy, I don't believe that veganish is going to catch on just like vegan didn't catch on just like Segan didn't catch on. It's like, I don't think those things are going to catch on. Now I should be careful about what I say because re- reducetarianism, flexitarianism, those sorts of things, I guess are relatively popular, but are they I though? Uh, flex i would say the majority of non-vegans know what a flexitarian is and i think that's a pretty good measure of how popular something related to our community is okay i'll say that the majority of non-vegans have heard the word flexitarian but i don't think that anyone could define it any more than you could define veganish i think that no no no. it just means you eat food i think i think flexitarian literally just means like omnivore but an omnivore that maybe thinks about what they eat <laughs> you know think, it's like a conscious omnivore oh god uh, i can't believe i just said those words that's gonna be the next book that's coming out the conscious omnivore <laughs> i bet that's already a book um yeah i mean I, when i think of flexitarian i think of someone that's like i try to choose the vegetarian or vegan meal whenever possible but i don't get too bent out of shape if that's not available to me Yes. No, I agree. I agree with that. And I I think that that just means omnivore. I think it just means that you eat food. I think it just means maybe you eat a slightly higher percentage of vegetarian or vegan meals. Um, Okay, Paul. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have been taking this position where I'm like arguing in favor of veganish, like I'm sort of defending it. Mm -hmm. And I like where I fall is that I kind of feel like the ish is already implied in vegan and I think this is sort of where you are you are getting at as well that that we need to have these conversations that embrace the fuzziness of veganism, Be, you know, because uh, I mean the comments on Tobias's post, people like so many people are like, I don't get what's fuzzy about this. You exploit animals or you don't, all, all of these things. So clearly, we need that conversation. But I don't think that adding on this term that people are going to confuse with, oh, I eat ten percent animal products is going to help. Because I feel like like you look at that initial definition of veganism, which says as far as practicable and possible, and that little clause right there, to me, that's the ish. Yeah. Because yeah. for different people, practical and possible are going to look differently. And I think that that's something that a lot of vegans lose sight of because people say, well, I am able to do this thing and you're not doing it, so therefore you're not really vegan and things like that are where we get a lot of this infighting that I think Tobias is tr- trying to counteract with this post about veganish, but obviously it's just inciting the masses to to spur on huge arguments. But to <laughs> me, I don't think we need the ish because I think it's baked into the definition already. Don't need the ish, Andy. No, I I agree with you. I think that I think that you're right. I think that like we're already having these debates with the word vegan already. And, and, and I think that 
we i said it before i'll say it again like i think we need to foster this a better environment surrounding how to have these debates yes yes absolutely okay so i guess the final question that i'll ask you at least that i know that i'm going to ask you paul is that (laughs) it's like wondering if do you think that maybe there is like we want to keep vegan intact but do you feel like maybe there are better descriptors like i was thinking perhaps saying if you're not you know, fully vegan but you're like you feel like you're so close you would say you're an aspiring vegan or what about that thing that i brought up like saying i'm anti-speciesist and that sort of leaves a little more wiggle room like saying i'm anti-sexist where it's like these are my general philosophies but i recognize that different people in this movement have different ideas about how to get there and occasionally i might indulge in you know, the example I keep giving, of course, is like some piece of media that that people within this movement disagree on, you know, something like that. Like, how do you do you feel like any of those labels work or help or do they just muddy the water as well? I re- I'll say this. I like aspiring vegan a lot. I think that out of the two of those, I would choose those because while I also like anti-species, like I, I think that that's a great term. I believe that people would just equate that with veganism like i think it would be very hard to implement that as something that's different than veganism because i think what you would find is anyone that calls themselves anti-speciesist and still consumes animals would be immediately bombarded by a ton of vegans saying well how are you're not anti-speciesist you're blah 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 blah." so i feel like it would be the same as if someone said i'm veganish or I'm vegan or I care about animals, but, but comma, but I'm doing this thing. Like, I think people would jump on that real quick. So while I do like the term, I, I don't believe it would be able to be implemented in the way that you are trying to implement it, which is, I think would be good, but I don't, I don't know how practical or how realistic that would be. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm also thinking about the conversation that I had with Callie and Nicole regarding anti-capitalist veganism, and something that they bring up in that episode and, and several other of their episodes is they sort of prefer to say instead of I am vegan, they say I am practicing veganism. And then that sort of gets at the same way that I'm like, I'm practicing being anti-racist. I am like, I'm trying to implement those things, but but it's not just like a label that I have. Like veganish is a label that you have and that's the thing that you are. Whereas like practicing veganism sort of implies that it's it's action that you continue to take that you're not the perfect ally just because you've applied that label to yourself that there's still more to do yeah yeah i i i'll I'll say this practicing veganism like i like that and i i get that and i don't think that i don't think though that like uh that would affect this conversation at all though because i I do still think that no one that's still eating meat could get away with saying I'm practicing veganism unless we changed the culture of it, you know? Yeah. Unless we changed the cultured meat of it. Hey, you know, I got a great news story for next week about the changing terminology around cultured meat. So <laughs> I, I didn't include in this one because I had a feeling we were going to go pretty long and I was right. So I should go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> All right, Paul. Yes, Andy. I feel like I have nothing left to say on this issue. I think we've ran this vegan-ish-ish well dry. 
So we, of course, would love to hear what you, yes, you that's listening to this right now, you wonderful Beardo, what do you think about all this? I feel like there's definitely a few sections that we kind of stumbled through. We don't really know how we're feeling about it, but we bet you do. We bet you have a great fully formed idea that you want to share with us. So please send it to us to thebeardedvegans at gmail.com and tell us why we're wrong. Tell us what we missed. (laughs) And ask us any questions you have about anything ever. <laughs> Tell us why you're mad. Tell us why you're steamed. Tell us why you're maddish. Maddish. <laughs> Andy, on that great joke, what do you got coming up? You know what, Paul? This weekend, you and I are going to be at the Vegandale Food and Drink Festival all weekend long, September 29th and 30th, 2018, on Randall's Island in New York City. October 6th and 7th, I'll be at the New Jersey Veg Fest in Secaucus, New Jersey. October 13th, that's that Chicago Vegan Mania with our live podcast, Chicago, Illinois. And then big weekend after that, October 20th and 21st, I'll be at the Portland Veg Fest in Portland, Oregon. And you know I'm going to have so much good food to talk about when that happens. So Nice. Very jelly. Super yeah, jelly. Definitely definitely come on out. And also that weekend, uh, our good buddies Josh and Steph are going to be doing the Boston Veg Fest in Boston, Massachusetts. So any of those events, look for the Compassion Company table, and you'll find me or Paul behind the table, unless it's Boston. And say, what's up, Beardo? Hook you up with a button and or sticker, depending on what we got laying around. Just look for the bright green tablecloth and the unicorn T-shirts. And if you want to find all those dates, deets, and links, or maybe even buy a shirt, you can go to CompassionCo.com. You know the drill. So, Paul, Mm -hmm. last weekend I did the Harvest Veg Fest. In yeah. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that Scranton, Pennsylvania is also a, a place where one of my favorite comedies is, takes place, The Offish. Uh, I'm just going to end the show right now, Andy. On that great joke, we are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. If you go there, gotta get the scallion pancake pancake hip. At least we can. Oh, hold on, there's a car. <clears throat> I feel like you were setting up for a good joke right there. No. At no. least we can forget about it. <laughs> and in the in the days leading up to this event, the the state issued a an evacuation of I believe about 1.5 million people in the the areas that were going to be the most hardest hit most hardest hit is that how you most hardest hit that (laughs) that new movie with the rock where the rock (laughs) plays baseball most hardest hit star in the rock great and so i don't know i i'm not encouraged by that paul hey hey andy i just realized i was reading two bullet points down (laughs) (laughs) i was not looking at the right thing